You often say, I hate adulting. What do you mean by that? Let's start with you, Olivia. I mean, just all of the things that come with being responsible for yourself, you know, financially, but then also just, like, keeping yourself fed and clothed and, like, clean is annoying. Like, you're just, you're just like, I have to eat again, you know? Like, <laughs> I have to wash laundry again. Like, it's exhausting. Like, you, you know, when you're a kid, other people do that for you. Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist for The Post. And for nearly 30 years, she's been giving advice to readers. But recently, Michelle wanted to talk about finances with her daughters. Olivia and Jillian are both in their 20s. And Michelle wanted to know, how are they thinking about money at this stage of life? Especially with a personal finance writer for a mom. I would say more of what scares me about adulting is that there's no, like, laid out path. Do I want to stay at this job? Do I want to move to a different state? Do I want to stay in the area? I'm like, it's all just big question marks. And that's what about adulting freaks me out. And like, can Mm. I call mom and dad to fix it for me? Like, I can't. So So that's interesting because let me give you just an example. So we Uh go out to dinner. Uh Uh, The check comes. I don't see either of you reaching for that check, Livia. Is that what we're talking about? Oh, like, that's what you mean. I mean, I just think sometimes, you know, it it, it feels as but if... But that's not a just a us thing. Like, when we go out to family dinners, like, you don't expect your sister to pay or, like, you know, our cousins that's to true. pay. Like, you have a very generous spirit. That's and true. so I think, who am I that's to true. deny you? <laughs> that's very true. Michelle's daughters aren't alone. Adulting can be overwhelming at any age. Making financial decisions is hard, not just in your 20s. We don't always know where to start. And sometimes we think we've already made some big mistakes that we can't come back from. But Michelle says it's never too late. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Zadi. It's Monday, January 23rd. Today, we ask Michelle for help. Michelle Singletary walks us through some of the biggest financial decisions that many of us make and tells us what we should be thinking about and doing with our money in each decade of adulthood. It's all part of Michelle's new project, Money Milestones, which includes this really great interactive online tool from The Washington Post. It puts her most time-tested conventional financial wisdom all in one place— And today, Michelle shares some of that wisdom with us. Well, Michelle, I'm so excited and relieved that you have this resource that you've put together as someone who (laughs) feels so overwhelmed all the time about financial planning and what to do about my finances. So I'm really glad that you did this. Let's talk about people like your kids who are in their 20s and are fresh out of college. And, you know, maybe these are young adults who have student loan debt and a little bit of savings or a first job that's just not paying them all that much. What are some quick ways for people in their 20s to build up their savings and their credit at this early adulthood phase? 
I think the number one thing that they should do, which is the advice that my grandmother, Big Mama, gave me when I started making money, um, was to every time you get paid, put a little bit aside. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes when you start out, you just don't think you have it to do that because you've got rent, maybe you got student loan debt, um, you know, utilities, gas. But you've got to start that habit now. And so even if it's $20, $10, if you can stretch yourself, try to do 5 or 10% of your earnings into a dedicated emergency fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and at then I think you've got to have a budget. And I know budget is a bad word for a lot of people, whether you're in your 20s or your 80s. It's just, right. <laughs> it feels so restrictive and, and you can't, you know, do the things that you want. But I get so excited about my budget because it actually tells me what I can do and the possibilities that I have for down the road. And, you know, here's the thing. We often talk about the younger generation and despair disparaging ways. You know, like they don't want to really work. They want to retire early. You know, they're overspending on avocado toast. And that's just not been my experience working with young adults, including my own young adults. They are very serious, many of them, about their money. And they don't want to make the mistakes that they see older adults do who are crying and whining and worrying because they didn't develop good financial habits in their 20s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, obviously everyone's financial situation is going to be different. Is there one thing that people in their 20s should think about doing that they never otherwise would have thought to do? I think the number one thing is to start saving for retirement. And it's a hard sell. Now, my children grew up in a household of savers. We save for their college education so they have no debt. We save for everything. They they know how to save. But I was talking to them about retirement initially when they got their full-time jobs. And they were just like, "Mm -mm, that's really long way down the road. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I said, listen, your oldest self will thank you. It was a hard sell for them to put as much away as we suggested, which was 15%. Uh, And I understand if you can't reach that goal, but try it. Uh, And when we showed her the numbers, she was shocked that she could retire probably in her early 50s if she started Mm. saving for retirement now. There's all this like, oh, should we be in crypto? What's the next great stock? Microsoft, Apple, you know. But really, the thing that young adults have that we older folks don't (laughs) is time. Mm. You have decades to build and be well-balanced and be able to save enough for your retirement. Okay, so what if a person wants to start investing because the idea of the stock market and mutual funds and all of that, it does feel overwhelming and kind of don't get it or I'll read about it and have a firm grasp on it. And then a week later, I'm like, wait, I don't understand how this works. So, and it just like leaves me wanting to just put cash under my mattress or something. <laughs> so, so for someone like me, where, where, when should I start thinking about investing and where do I start if I want like a safe, easy to understand investment strategy? How should I go about that? Well, if you put it on your mattress, give me your address. <laughs> Well, you're not going to be home. (laughs) I'll I'll manage it for you. (laughs) Okay, noted. Not doing that. (laughs) Listen, you start investing when you have an extra dollar. 
And that may be in your 20s. That might be in your 30s or 40s. When you have extra, you've taken care of the basic necessities, then you must grow your dollar. And here's the thing. Investing really is connected to inflation. Because lots of times you'll ask people, why did they invest? And they'll go, oh, you know what? I'm going to retire some of my kids of college. But really, your number one answer would be to beat inflation. Because your dollars in the future have to buy the things that you need in the future. That dollar you put under the mattress may be only worth 40 cents down the road, which means you will have less to buy the things that you need. You know, if you work for a company that offers a retirement plan, put the money in there. So you want to have some stocks, equities, or you want to have some bonds. And bonds are basically IOUs. So you give somebody the money. They say, you know what, we're going to give you your money back. And then some interest on top of that. They're less risky than than stocks. So equities are going to give you potentially more growth, but you want to have the security of bonds in your portfolio. And that's how you look at it. Most people do it through their job. Now, if your job doesn't have a retirement account, you still can save for retirement in a traditional IRA. And where do you find out about that? Go to your local bank or credit union or their online, like I love going to Morningstar, for example. Um, I love Investopedia.com. I love Bankrate.com. I visit all of these sites. And of course, I devour everything in the business section at the Washington Post. And I'm not kidding you. I just everything because I need to stay informed. And then once you have a strategy, a plan, stick with it even when the market is kind of funky. Um, And so you're not scared to do something that is not part of your plan. Okay, Michelle, now let's talk about people who are in their 30s, like me. Yes, I will disclose my, my decade <laughs> on air. Um, so this is sort of a period of time that, you know, they're settling into adulthood. Maybe they have a full-time job with benefits, a retirement plan. Maybe folks have kids or young family. And maybe, you know, at this stage in your life, your biggest debt is student loans. So, Michelle, how do people in their 30s pay down their student loan debt? It's going to take a lot of discipline. Um, You want a lot of things, uh, but you need to hold off until you get that debt paid off. So perhaps you're in a starter home, for example, and you want to move up. Your family's growing and you feel like, well, I want the kids to have more room. I want more room. But you've got this looming student loan debt. I would say stay in the starter house until you can get rid of that debt. Um, Maybe you're accustomed to taking vacations every year. Maybe you take a vacation every other year and use that money to pay down your debt. You need to get that debt off of your balance sheets because what it does, it it limits your ability to build wealth because you're servicing debt. And that means that you're not putting money in the stock market. You're not maybe saving enough to send your kids to college. You're not building that emergency cushion. And so I would say in your 30s, if you're carrying debt, student loan debt, credit card debt, maybe you built up credit card debt to get to the life that you have, must, must pay it off so that you can free up that cash to invest and build your wealth. Mm. Yeah, I also do want to ask you about home ownership because, you know, I think about a lot of my peers, myself, folks trying to become first-time homeowners or feel like that's out of reach. If if I'm still renting in my, I like to call it my deep 30s, that's where I am. <laughs> if, if I'm still renting at this stage in life, is that a financially bad idea? I do not think it's a bad idea. Oh, thank you. 
<laughs> we we do such a disservice to folks who rent by saying things like, "Oh, if you rent, you're throwing your money away," and you know, right. you rent, you're not getting anything for your money, um, and that is just not true. You're getting a roof over your head. You're also not getting all the financial obligations that come with owning a home. Yes, you can build equity in that home, and over time, that you can use that equity. But until you get there, you got to maintain that house, right? You got to pay taxes. There's all kinds of things that are built in there that we don't talk about. Anybody who owns a home knows it's a money pit, you know? (laughs) I mean, and I'm saying this as a person who bought her first home when she was 22. I've been a homeowner all my wow. life, all my life. Michelle, I, 22? 22. <laughs> I bought a two-bedroom, one-bath condo in West Baltimore. I rent it for exactly one year. That's it. So I am a big believer in home ownership, but I was able to do that because there was a first-time homeboy program and I had room in my budget. But if you live in a very high-cost area and that's not in the cards for you, don't mm-hmm. feel like you're a financial failure. You can still build well, just on a different path. Right, right. I'm glad that I'm talking to you about this because you're making me feel better about my life choices. (laughs) Absolutely. Certainly home ownership is a key part of the net worth of most Americans. As long as it leaves you cushion in your budget to save and have an emergency fund uh, Mm. to save for retirement, as long as you can still do those things comfortably, then go ahead and buy that house. What percentage of a person's income should go towards housing? I feel like the sort of standard I've heard for so long is one-third of your gross income. Is that what you would suggest? I would say one-third of your net income. That's where I differ uh, Mm. because we are qualified for our homes based on our gross income. But let me ask you this. Do you take your gross home? I do not. Exactly. (laughs) She said with certainty. (laughs) I'm glad you said that. I would have to turn you into the IRS. (laughs) Are you trying to catch me? Catch me on on tape here? (laughs) So, So here's the thing. What they don't look at is... You need money to save for your kids to go to college. You need money to save the retirement, child care costs. You need to build all of that in when you sit down and see, can I afford this house? For example, my husband and I got married. We wanted to buy, you know, a, a single family home. But I was taking care of my disabled brother. And so when we sat down and looked at the numbers, we factored in the money that I sent him every month. We factored in the money that we set aside for retirement. We looked at all of those expenses and then backed out how much house could we afford. And it turned out it was about a third of our net income, not gross. That gave us the cushion. And because of that, we were able to save to send all three of our children to college debt-free. Well, I I do also want to ask you about planning for a family. It seems like millennials and Gen Z, they're either planning to or just are getting married and having kids later in life than their parents' and grandparents' generation. And, you know, a lot of young people, they might want to travel or feel unencumbered. But is there such a thing as a right time, financially speaking, to settle down and start a family? I don't think there is, honestly, it, because it's so individualized in terms of when's the right time to have a kid and do some of these things. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm such an organized person. Like, I even decided when, what time of year I wanted to have my kids. 
<laughs> wow. I, I'm telling you, I'm really crazy because I didn't <laughs> want to be stuck in a house um, during the wintertime. So I wanted to have spring and summer babies so we could be out walking and knowing things. So I hate the cold. <laughs> and so all of my kids are spring and summer babies. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is hilarious because I'm like big time man plans, God laughs vibes. And you're like, I know which season I am. Exactly. Right. It's all about planning or what works for you. Right. Uh-huh. And so I can't tell you don't have a baby if you don't have this much in your bank account. But I will say this. Think very hard about how you're going to pay for all the costs that it takes to raise a child. You know, the Department of Agriculture does this sort of the cost of raising a baby. And, you know, when you factor in current inflation, it's about $300,000 by the time the kid is 17. That doesn't include college savings. And so you need to look at that number. It doesn't mean that you're going to decide, hey, I don't have enough money. I'm not going to have a kid. But I tell people who are thinking about having a kid to spend a year before pretending that they have a child. So every month, take out what it would cost for daycare and put it into a savings account. Take out what it costs by diapers and medicine and all that kind of thing and put it in a savings account and see how you're managing during that year. If it's very, very stressful because you're servicing debt, like student loan debt, credit card debt, then you might want to wait a, a, a year or two. Be as intentional about your family planning as you are about your finances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that idea of if you have the capacity to do almost like a test run, it's almost like a financial version of that old like school assignment that kids would get in high school or middle school, like a carton of eggs and pretend yes. it's a kid and take care of it. Um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And, you know, the caveat, like you're saying with everything is obviously everyone's situation is very different and a lot of these decisions are very personal. So right, right. there's also that. Yeah. After the break, we get the best advice for adults in their 40s, 50s, and beyond. And Michelle talks about caring for multiple generations at once, including aging parents. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Michelle, let's move along to the 40s and 50s. It's often referred to as, you know, like the sandwich generation, because these are adults who might be raising children and at the same time caring for aging parents. Um, What are some steps people in their 40s and 50s can take to ease the stress and financial burden of taking care of multiple generations at once? Yeah. I call it crunch time. That's really crunch time. Maybe you didn't do some of the things that you wanted to do or should have done in your 20s and 30s, and now you look up in your 40s and 50s, it's coming around the corner, and you don't have the savings that you like, and you're raising children, costs a lot of money. You're looking at your elderly parents, and maybe they're struggling financially, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, 
I'm going to have to help them out. And so this is probably the time, I think, that you would sit down with a financial planner. I think Mm. use the money to hire someone to look at what you have and what you need to make sure you have financial security for your family. For example, do you have enough life insurance? Do you have disability insurance? What is the plan to send their kids to college? You know, what is the plan for your parents if you know that they are not financially stable? This is the time to have the conversation with them. You know, mom and dad, how are you set for your retirement? Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to tell you because it's a difficult conversation, but you still press the issue and you still have enough time to correct bad behavior. Michelle, let's say you get to 50 and you haven't saved very much for retirement. What can you do at that stage? Like, how do you build up enough wealth so that you don't feel like you have to work for the rest of your life? Yeah, it's such a great question because lots of people feel so down on themselves. And listen, 50, you can still do a lot of planning. You can still save because we know that we're living longer. So you reach your 50s, you still probably got another 30 or 40 years, you know, if you're in good health to live. So you still have time to build up your retirement. But it means that you're going to have to cut your expenses. You're going to have to do some things differently. Maybe you do some shared housing, you know? Maybe you've got a young adult child who's struggling, or maybe your elderly parents are struggling. You move in together so that you can sort of save on housing. Perhaps you were like, I'm retiring at 65 no matter what. Well, you might not be able to afford to say no matter what. You might, Mm. if your health allows it, because lots of people think they can work longer and health challenges prevent that. But if you can, it may be, that you're going to work through your 60s and maybe even 70s if you can. But there's still time. Yeah, this this crunch time for people in their 40s and 50s, that's also a conversation that they can be having with their young adult children too, right? Because you asked your daughters about this as well, right? I did. I, I, You know, it's so funny. I asked them, uh, how did they feel about where— their dad and I were in terms of our retirement savings. And they all, but they very bust out laughing. It's like, oh, we know you good. And I said, but what if something happens? We become ill and we run through a lot of our money. What then? And what they said to me, it, it, I, I, it brought tears to my eyes. Mm. They said, you know, we're going to take care of you guys. But here's the thing. You have taught us enough that we'll have the money to do that. Do you guys ever worry about taking care of dad and I? Um, no, no. Just no. Not financially. Yeah, right? No. We'll say. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. The logistics of that, I mean, that's a whole different podcast about like taking right. care of your parents. Taking care of your Asian parents is the, a whole The financial aspect game. of it, absolutely right. not. Because not, right. only, not only do I know that you're being really financially responsible mm-hmm. and saving for your own retirement and, and being, and, able you know, to kind of that to take care right. of you. And have like, you know, saving money for us to help with that. But I think also, the position that we're in with now, starting out yeah. with like not, you know, not having student loan debt, like not having car payments, that that will set us up to then have money to save so that if anything does happen to you or just kind of the natural progression of life of us having to take care of the two of you, we won't be strapped. And also, it's also nice that I know that my siblings are doing the same thing. We can all say, okay, we can all contribute equally to the care that you need. 
Mm. It's good to know. I'm going to keep y'all in the wheel now. <laughs> I mean, but that doesn't mean we're not going to financially put it into a nursing home. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, just, that's so just keeping you humble. That's so <laughs> Michelle, let's let's transition now to the 60s and 70s decades to do what decisions people can make in those decades. So you're 60. Do you mind sharing what your biggest debt is right now? Or what is the biggest debt that someone around your age generally usually has? Yeah, that number. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to throw it out there, but <laughs> that you have to tell the people. You know? <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. So <laughs> the the number one thing that is on our minds, both my husband and I are in our 60s, um, is to pay our home off before we retire. And that has been a singular focus throughout you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, that by the time we retire, we will have no mortgage and we are on track for that and then some. And that is the only debt that we have. And it's been the only debt we've had for decades. We don't buy cars with debt. We didn't pay for college education with debt. We use credit cards, but we pay them off every month. We don't live our lives with other people's money. And I I really do believe that the best thing you can do for your retirement is not drag a mortgage into your retirement. Because with housing is a third to maybe 40%, and some areas 50% of your budget, imagine if that's not on your books, how much better in retirement you could live without having that mortgage. Yeah. What are the biggest financial decisions that people in their 70s should be thinking about or considering So I'm going to back up a little and also answer that question for the 60s. So for your 60s, the biggest decision you'll probably make leading up to 70 is when to take Social Security. Mm. Uh, And there's a huge debate about early or late. Do you take it at 62 or before your full retirement age, which for many people is either 66, somewhere in 66 or 67? Or do you wait till 70 when it maxes out? So you must, you should take it at 70 because you get no more after that. Uh, And so you need to look at your personal life. If you're struggling, you're retired, um, you really can't work, and you can't wait till 70, go ahead and take it. If you have the resources and you're living okay and you don't need to, hold on to that and, and wait and take that benefit when you hit 70 because it will increase at a rate that is not guaranteed in the market. Um, and so when you hit your 70s and you haven't taken Social Security, obviously go ahead and take it. You might have looked at, did I have a will, please? Maybe you you know dragged your feet, but now is the time to do that. You want to look at long-term care issues because 70% of seniors are going to end up needing long-term care at some point. There are many seniors who live well into their 90s on their own, in their homes, no problem. But there are a lot who can't do that. And if you get to the point where perhaps there's a diagnosis of dementia or something, and you want to hold on to your independence so much that you want to stay in that house, but you can't. And I speak from experience on this. My my father-in-law was in his home, and he'd been independent until his um, 80s. And then he hit a health crisis. He got lung cancer. He couldn't live on his own. He was suffering from diabetes. He just couldn't do it. And I tell you, he did not want to leave. He made it very difficult. My husband and I finally took him in. And the first couple, you know, the first 
part of his stay here was pretty bad. He was angry and mad, and I, it was nothing we could do right. And then finally, through some therapy and some other things, we figured out how to manage his um, anxiety and anger. And it and towards the end, he died. Mm-hmm. He died in my home. Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful that we were able to be there in his last days, that he was in a comfortable space with 24-hour care, either from caregivers or myself and my husband. And we were by his bedside when he closed his eyes for the last time. Mm -hmm. And we were grateful that he allowed us to do that finally. He he allowed us to, to bring him out of his home and into our home. And there are a lot of adult children who would want their parents to allow them to do that. I need you to talk to your adult children. I need you to give them permission to take care of you in a way that is dignified and not be so so stubborn that you don't see that you can't live on your own anymore. Yeah. It is such a blessing to be able to offer your parent dignified care and be with them at the end of their life and and not have to worry about the financial strain. But it also sounds like what's required is having conversations before it even gets to that point, which can feel difficult for people. Like a lot of people just don't even want to talk about these yeah. things. So um, do you have a piece of advice of how people could maybe enter that conversation when Really what we want to do is stay present for everything else that's happening. Yeah, it's very hard. Some some families, it's not hard. The parents go to the adult children and say, listen, I need to talk to you about what we have, what we don't have. Let's come up with a plan. Um, with my father-in-law, one of the ways we started the conversation is we hired a financial planner to work with him. Mm, and we, like a third party. Like a third party. Because, you know, sometimes it's hard to listen to your family members, right? I sometimes suggest to them to pull articles, like from the Washington Post, about <laughs> aging and things like that and say, hey, did you see this article? I, You know, what do you think about that? And then you can use that as a conversation starter. Um, AARP has an entire website devoted to long-term care and how to start the conversation. I would use that as a resource. And you want to do it at a at a non-stressful uh, time and just say, hey, what do you think about, and then kind of start it from there. Michelle, that's also helpful. Um, you know, Michelle, you've been with the Washington Post for over 20 years offering financial advice to readers, and the economy and the way people think about their finances during that time, it seems like it's changed a lot. So Have you changed your mind on certain things that you thought to be, this is like the gospel on how to deal with your finances? Yeah. So it's true. I've been at the Post for a very long time. I've been it for 30 years. The column is 25 years. Actually, this year will be 26 years. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm going to tell you, vice has not changed. Wow, I love that. It has not. (laughs) Because listen, we during that time that I've had this column, we've had recessions, we've had unprecedented economic prosperity. And so through all of it, when things were good, I was like, get rid of that debt. When things were bad, get rid of that debt. When times were good, save, save, save. When times were bad, save, save, save. Because (laughs) the basics of personal finance do not change depending on what's happening in the economy. Living below your means, saving as soon as you can in your 20s, keeping that debt down, if not out altogether. All of those principles are the same 
no matter what's happening in the economy. Prosperity starts with a plan, and it doesn't change over time. Mm. Well, Michelle, on behalf of you know myself and all of your readers and now listeners, um, we're just so fortunate that you've been here at The Post for for so long offering this advice. And thank you so much for joining us today and walking us through all of the, the decisions we can make at all phases of our lives. Thanks, Michelle. Oh, thank you. Michelle Singletary is the personal finance columnist for The Post. Her latest project, Michelle Singletary's Money Milestones for Every Age, is now live at WashingtonPost.com. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Sharla Freeland and edited by Rena Flores, with help from Maggie Penman. It was mixed by Sean Carter. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.